morning, everyone. Like you said, my name is Bill Roach, and it is a pleasure to be here with all of you. This is my first time to Phoenix, so thank you for having me. I am from the Midwest, Iowa via Chicago, and it is nice to be here during a warm season because it's so cold there. You know, I kind of joked in one sense that we thought we could fix politics in Chicago by making it so cold that you would actually find a politician with his hands in his own pockets. But the problem is, it has not worked. But So what we're going to do here is we're going to dive into this topic of hermeneutics and perspectivalism. And what I want us to do is to frame this conversation in a broader dialogue within Western philosophy and Western history. And let's just think about one aspect of where we have come from. In so many respects, when we look at the issues of the Reformation, and we think of Martin Luther in particular, he was the the German monk who radically converted to Christ due to the authority of Scripture, giving the clear message of the gospel. And we realized that during the Reformation, there were different causes of the Reformation. And there was what was known as the material cause of the Reformation and the formal cause of the Reformation. And the material cause of the Reformation was justification by faith alone. But underlying that was the formal cause of the Reformation, which was the issue of Scripture alone. So think of it like this. The debate took place over justification. That was sort of the the spark. But what it did is it revealed the underlying issue is that we have two different understandings for how Scripture should be understood and how we should actually interpret the text of Scripture. And when you look at the debate concerning Scripture during the Reformation, the Roman Catholics, in so many respects, were over both the ecclesiological sphere and the political sphere. And what Luther was having to battle was this literal magisterium over the clear teachings of Scripture. And that's where we're finding ourselves today, is we are in a situation where there are multiple facets to this dialogue that are dealing with the issue, as we're going to look at as Christians, of whether or not we can have an objective understanding of the biblical text. In Luther's day, you had both the government and the church affecting this conversation. And today, it's both the government and the church affecting how we appropriate and understand the text of Scripture. That's why we can't make these kind of false bifurcations that we can just hide our way in our churches and we deal with this and we don't have to worry about anything else that's going on around us. Because if you look at the history of these debates throughout the church, it's a both and conversation because the conversation takes place in a variety of different areas. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at this issue and I want you to keep this whole picture in your mind the entire time with Martin Luther of is it something where we need something else in order to interpret the text of Scripture. Some higher, almost dominating thought force that's going to tell us what Scripture means. So in order to do so, I want us to look at a few things. The first one is we're going to offer a definition or definitions of perspectivalism. We're going to look at a definition or definitions of hermeneutics. Then we're going to look at the central issue of philosophical subjectivity 
and the evangelical embrace of critical hermeneutics and this issue of engaging true truth. So coming back to this and returning to Martin Luther, he was dealing with the issue of private interpretation versus magisterial interpretation. And we know that the Roman Catholic Church's claim was that private interpretation necessarily results in the distortion of Scripture. And Luther insisted that Rome's use of the magisterium turned Scripture into a wax nose. And that's why we've got to this debate between the ministerial use of tradition versus the magisterial use of tradition. Now, as we look at tradition as it relates to the text of Scripture, it's one thing to say that the church fathers are influencing, helping, guiding, ministering to us versus a magisterial understanding where they're necessarily determining, dictating, and mandating that we interpret scripture in such a way. And here's where it comes down to. When you're appropriating the text of scripture and you're reading the text of scripture, let's just say it makes a clear claim like Luther was saying, justification is by faith alone. And you have something within tradition, higher, above it, almost a dominating both political and ecclesiological force over it to change what the clear meaning of Scripture is. He says, in that regard, you turn it into a wax nose. So what I want you to do is keep this idea, keep building this idea in your mind. Is there something telling me what Scripture has to say? And does it turn Scripture into a wax nose? knows. Because ultimately where we're going with this is, is that this issue of philosophical hermeneutics coming from perspectivalism turns the text of scripture into a wax nose because you have an outside dominating theory dictating, magisterially dictating, both in a political and now as they're changing the aspects of the church, ecclesiological aspect of telling us what scripture means. So that's the big picture of where we're going with this. Now, the whole point is, can we have a valid and sound interpretation of scripture? So diving into this, definitions of perspectivalism. The founding father of perspectivalism was Nietzsche. And the primary text that he gives his definitions and understandings of this is in his book titled The Gay Science. And it's probably the most popular expression of it. And when he's speaking about the possibility of knowledge, he writes this. We simply lack any organ for knowledge, for truth. We know or believe or imagine just as much as may be useful in the interest of the human herd, the species. And even what is here called utility is ultimately also a mere belief, something imaginary, perhaps precisely that most calamitous stupidity of which we shall perish some day. So the point is, is he's trying to say in one sense, we lack the ability to have knowledge, objective knowledge. And one of the reasons is because Nietzsche does not simply deny knowledge exists, where knowledge is understood as a form of representationalism. He also refuses any pragmatist understanding of knowledge where truth is deemed that which is just useful. The Blackwell Companion to Philosophy notes this, and this is a key understanding of this. Nietzsche's view, his perspectivalism, depends on his claim that there is no sensible conception of the world independent of human interpretation to which interpretations would correspond if they were to constitute knowledge. Think about this again. It's this idea. There's no 
sensible conception of a world independent of human interpretation. So as he's looking at this, the core husk of this notion, namely the denial of knowledge independent of human interpretation or a realism by which interpretations can be judged underlies nearly all forms of perspectivalism. Everything is interpretation all the way down. There's no way to validate, corroborate, balance, reflect. You know, when you have a, a map in the real world, you see a representation between the two to check and balance what's going on, because even your check and balance is an interpretation. It's a perspective. There's no independent forms of knowledge by which we can corroborate our truth claims. In this sense, perspectivalism is a form of anti-realism and relativism summarized by Nietzsche's famous quote, facts are precisely what there is not, only interpretations. If correct, then who is right? And here's where the crux comes down to as it works its way out to society. Either the one who indoctrinates or compels belief upon their hearers, namely the concept of a will to power. You either sucker them into the view or you force your view upon them because there's no independent facts that can adjudicate what's going on. Now, there are a variety of ways that we can illustrate perspectivalism. And I give you three here. And the first one is, is this idea of the lens theory of knowledge. And when you look at this, you see this figure who's looking at a world of unrelated facts, but he can only interpret it through his lens. This is one illustration of saying, you don't know the world in and of itself, but only as it appears unto you, only as it is interpreted through you, only through your perspective. The next one, figure four, this duck-rabbit analogy. And when you look at this, some people are going to say, no, I clearly think that it's a duck. And other people are going to go, no, I clearly think that it's a rabbit. And the point of this game that they're playing with you is, is that, see, all knowledge is based off of your perspective. There's no way. Both of you could be right on it, but both of you are also just giving your own interpretation of the matter, your own perspective of the matter. Another one that they give here is the illusion with the two different arrows. The lines are actually the exact same length, but when you look at the arrows, the lines are pointed in different directions. But when you look at this, which line looks bigger? Which one looks smaller? The one on the bottom looks bigger. The one on the top looks smaller. And they're going to say, see, there's no independent facts. You know that one of these could be the same size, or maybe it's not. It's your different perspective on the matter. And the point is, it's interpretations all the way down. Now, one thing that I've done over the years is that I've taught philosophy of science. And I illustrate this with what has come into academia, and it's largely committed to varying forms of anti-realism and relativism and subjectivity in nearly every discipline, and it's dominated by these core tenets of perspectivalism, namely no truth independent or no true independent reality or basis for knowledge. And one way that they illustrate this is that historically science has had a strong appeal to this objective understanding to knowledge. And they use principles like Heisenberg's uncertainty principle to say, you have this eye that's looking at it. Is this whole issue that you're looking at, 
Is light a photon or is it a wave? Is it a particle or is it a wave? It depends on how you interpret it. And they say, see, we can give you analogies from the duck rabbit. We can give it from different lines to prove our point that even science in and of itself is a form of perspectivalism. Examples abound in other disciplines within psychology and sociology. They change it from perspectives about scientific principles to now sociological principles. Are you Eurocentric or Afrocentric in your interpretations? varying sociologies of knowledge or within science. Is it causal perspectivalism and our perceptions of time and light? It depends on it. The whole point is there's a relativity to it. There's a perspective. Everything is interpreted. Now, as we start to apply it to the key issues that we're dealing with here, we're not dealing with just science. We're not dealing with just issues related to psychology. We're dealing with this as it relates to the social justice movement, particularly as it deals with race and how we're going to appropriate different texts, either the biblical text, the constitution, or any text that you're going to deal with in your life. Now, Richard Delgado, in the book Critical Race Theory, claims perspectivalism is the belief that a person's or group's position or standpoint greatly influences how they see truth and reality. So they're granting this whole paradigm of knowledge as their foundation for dealing with interpretations of reality as such. Delgado goes on to say, categories and subgroups then are not just matters of theoretical interest. How we frame them determines who has power, voice, and representation, and who does not. Perspectivalism, the instance of examining how things look from the perspective of individual actors, helps us understand the predicament of intersectional individuals. It can enable us to frame approaches that may do justice to a broad range of people and avoid oversimplifying human experience. A related critical tool that has proven useful in this respect is the notion of multiple consciousness. And we're going to deal with this significantly more as we get into figures like Schleiermacher later, which holds that most of us experience the world in different ways on different occasions because of who we are. So the point that they're trying to get at here in this quote is that perspectivalism is giving us a way for understanding that different groups, based off of their different racial locations, historical locations, oppressor groups, less oppressor groups, view the world differently. And these things don't necessarily just influence you. They necessarily dictate or causally determine the way you have to understand reality. The point is, is that you are bound up in these varying interpretations and you cannot be released or freed from them. Now, one other thing that Delgado goes on to say is, indeed, one aspect of whiteness, according to some scholars, is its ability to seem perspective-less or transparent. Whites do not see themselves as having a race, but as being simply people. They do not believe that they think and reason from a white viewpoint, but from a universally valid one, the truth, what everyone, quote, knows. In short, 
if you are sitting there looking at this saying, well, I think that this whole perspectival view and the idea that we're just racially or sociologically determined, causally determined, I think that's foolishness. Well, that's an example of you expressing your whiteness. So let's all just accept our whiteness now and go forward with it. The point is, is that this is not just a, a claim that they're making about knowledge. It's a way to shut you up. Do you think about this? It's a debater's tactic. It's like, it's like the old joke that could sometimes be said. Um, you know, did you stop beating your wife last night? Uh, yes? No? It's a, it's a power struggle because at one sense... Not only are knowledge claims a will to power, but the way that language functions over you is a manifestation of power over you. That's a, it's a postmodern principle of the power of linguistics over an individual, but it's also a way of just controlling the conversation. But the point that we have to see here is that these figures are completely committed to an anti-realist, perspectival, causal determined, causally determined idea for how you must necessarily interpret reality. Now, this continues to manifest itself more in the, the dictates of wokeness, and James Lindsay and Pincourt in their book Counter Wokecraft, so we're dealing not only with wizardry, but we're dealing with almost the cultic application of it as wokecraft. They talk about woke are people who are conscious of the critical social justice perspective and adhere unto it. So they're aware of what they're doing. They're aware of the boundaries of what's taking place. They use the buzzwords. They use the language. It's almost like a dog whistle. We know how dog whistles work. Like we, we talk about it, but I don't know if we always understand how they work. You and I can't hear the whistle. Only the dog can hear the whistle. So as you blow it, the dog will necessarily respond to you. And those who aren't of the initiated, those who aren't playing the woke craft game, you can tell because they're not responding to the to the dog whistle, the buzzwords. Whereas James was saying in his presentation last night, they're not falling for the wizard's wand in that regard. And they offer three different principles for how this perspectivalism works. The knowledge principle, which they claim is, reality itself is not denied or questioned. Rather, it is considered impossible for us to know its true nature. The reason it's impossible for us to know about reality's true nature is that any knowledge we think we have is actually only socially constructed, defined through language by the culture which we live. In addition, they have the political principle. It is that it is that not only is knowledge socially constructed, but knowledge is constructed by oppressor groups in society at the expense of oppressed groups. Their final thing that they're getting at is this subject principle, is that individuals are primarily defined by their group identity, namely white, female, black, European, cisgendered, and so forth. But the political principle gives us two other things. One, knowledge is by definition biased and can't be an accurate representation of reality. And two, different cultures provide different understandings of the world, ergo, no worldview is more authoritative than any other. All worldviews are epistemically equivalent in theory, not in actual practice. But notice this, they think their worldview is epistemically more authoritative and they lecture you about it. Here's one of the interesting things. 
they make these, these foolish claims. No book can speak cross-culturally to a different race, to a different gender, to a different group, and label all the different places and ways that it can't speak to except their book. Isn't that just wonderful? Nobody can have transcultural knowledge and knowledge claims except me. I'm the only one who can do it. It's a grave inconsistency within the, the whole theory in and of itself. It's very beneficial. Think about this. Uh, I want to give this illustration. So at one point in time, I offered to debate one of these guys. And what I was going to do is I was going to let him go first. And I was going to let him lay out all of this. One of the, the big figures within evangelicalism. He turned down the debate. And I don't think he's ever going to take it. So I can give out my debater's trick right now. I was going to let him go first. And I was going to let him lay out his entire view. And I was going to get up and I was going to ask a series of questions. I was going to say things like this. If you're a woman in here, raise your hand. If you're a man in here, raise your hand. If you're white, raise your hand. If you're black, raise your hand. If you understood what this individual just got up and said to us, raise your hand. And I would expect virtually everybody would raise their hand. And I would say, you've just proven my point. He just spoke to a group of people with different races, genders, cultures, perspectives about his view, which proves my point and go home. It's wonderful. But what we have to do is we have to ask this next question. How does this affect hermeneutics? And within evangelicalism, we are deeply committed to this idea of hermeneutics because we see it as this idea of the Bible is God's revealed word. God has revealed his mind to us in his word. And it is the task of not only the pastor, but the people of God to rightly interpret the word of God. It is the word of God for the people of God. Insofar, it is rightly interpreted. But hermeneutics today has turned into this discipline that's way more than just the historical grammatical approach to the text of Scripture. And that's what I want to look at here. Now, Richard Palmer wrote this book titled Hermeneutics, and it came out in the 60s. He was a professor at Northwest University outside of Chicago for a number of years. And in his book, Palmer is offering us a treatise on phenomenology and existential philosophy. And he lists several different definitions of hermeneutics. And the two broad issues that he's looking at here that you have to keep in mind are hermeneutics as methodology and hermeneutics as epistemology. So hermeneutics as a way in which you actually are just appropriating the text or any text. It doesn't even have to just be the biblical text. And largely this is coming from an understanding of the interpretation of classical literature, whether it's the Bible or Cicero or Aristotle or Plato, whichever, there was this humanist approach to understanding texts of scripture. But there's also another definition of hermeneutics as the knowledge conditions that are required in order to have an understanding of scripture. And he lists these different appropriations. The first one is that it's a theory of biblical exegesis, hermeneutics as methodology. Now, that could also be a hermeneutics not of just biblical exegesis, but the exegesis of any text from the ancient world. If you study the history of hermeneutics, that was one of the key eras in the understanding of interpretation. Two, general philological methodology, namely this idea of a historical grammatical interpretation of the text. I want to understand a word in its context 
during the time in which it was written, within the proposition, within the broader paragraph, and even how it's used within the entire book of the text of Scripture. Now, many of us think, yeah, that's what hermeneutics is. But what happened was, is that hermeneutics came to the forefront through a figure known as Frederick Schleiermacher. And he gave us a definition of hermeneutics as the science of linguistic understanding. Hermeneutics is that of understanding. It's a formal view of looking at knowledge by understanding understanding as such. It's not just, I understand the text. Rather, it's an issue of, do you understand how you understand and the way that affects the way you appropriate any other biblical text. It's a direct focus upon the modes and operations of understanding that each of us bring to the text. This gives us the hermeneutical spiral and circle that we'll look at later. The next one is Geisteswissenschaften, or a phenomenology and existentialism. And these are the philosophies coming in with Heidegger and Gadamer and the notions of Dasein and the fusions of historical horizons. And then finally, it gets into a system of interpretation, language and recovery of meaning, the hermeneutics of suspicion, really the, the importation of Freudian constructs of whether or not we can have knowledge, and that we're going to look at the aspects of how suspicion affect this. But what I want you to see here is that, that there has been a massive transition from we appropriate the biblical text or any text to now there has to be a strong emphasis upon the person interpreting the text and then ultimately the mind of the author of the text. So instead of reading the text, we read in front of the text, beside the text, around the text, behind the text, to the point that we no longer read text. So the central issue of this is that it brought us into a form of not only just philosophical subjectivity, but hermeneutical subjectivity, because each of us appropriate texts in different ways. The argument can be summarized from this figure, Tom Howe, in his book, Objectivity and Biblical Interpretation. Tom Howe is a longtime professor of Bible and biblical languages at Southern Evangelical Seminary. He's defended the notion of objectivity interpretation for years, and he's the co-author of several books on the Bible and hermeneutics. In fact, I think Tom Howe is probably the brightest person dealing with this topic within evangelicalism. This book right here is one that you should buy and read immediately. Now, how summarizes this key issue like this? And I'm just going to lay it all out here. This is the argument that's used in its almost propositional form. Everyone comes to the world with his own framework of understanding. No particular framework of understanding is universally valid. But universal validity is precisely what is implied in the notion of objectivity. Therefore, no interpreter can be objective in interpretation. But if no interpreter can be objective, then no interpretation is universally valid. But if no interpretation is universally valid, then the concept of a correct interpretation is at best relative or at worst empty. Since there is no such thing as a correct interpretation, there's no means of adjudicating between interpretations. In fact, the very idea of adjudication between interpretations is at best relative and at worst empty. In short, they start out with this notion. We all do come to the text with our different conditions, right? Right? They, they buy into this. You have, 
come from a background and you bring your experiences to the text of Scripture. That's a, that's a true claim in that regard. But what they do is they overstate it. There's a, there's a transition that goes from here where they're subtly giving you a perspectival epistemology that's coming to this. Because remember, it's all how you qualify claims and define words. So there's a large difference, a wide gap between all of us bring text or things to the text that influence us versus all of us bring these different social factors that necessarily determine the way that we have to interpret a text and we cannot be freed from them. Do you see the difference there? And this is where they're getting at this point is that all of us bring this to it, but there's no way that we can say one particular framework of understanding is universally valid. Why? There is no such thing as universally valid knowledge claims. So at this point, if you're going to say that you're going to have an interpretation of the text of Scripture, that is your interpretation of Scripture. That can't be a universally valid interpretation of Scripture. You don't have what the Bible says. You no longer have the doctrine of the Christian faith. You no longer have the interpretation of the Bible that gives you the gospel. Rather, you have lowercase g's, gospels, interpretations, because there's no universally valid framework of understanding. As we continue to go through this, we have to ask ourselves, well, where did this come from? Because ideas not only have consequences, they have origins. And understanding the ebb and flow of the history of ideas helps us to understand how did we get to this point? And what can we do about it? Now, the history of ideas can be understood in this chart that was put out here as really, the I call it the, the big X, where you see the crossroads of the different strains of philosophy. And what I want to do is just briefly explain this because this is our roadmap. And we're not going to discuss each one of them, but I want you to see where we came from and what's going on. And when you look at this, up in the top, you see rationalism. And rationalism is giving us this idea that knowledge comes prior to experience. And when they're dealing with propositional truth claims, because in order to communicate truth, you have to put it in a claim, they're going to say, in particular, not only does knowledge come prior to experience, but it's going to give us analytic truth claims. And an analytic claim is one in which the subject and the predicate have continuity, or the subject is contained in the predicate, and the predicate's contained in the subject. So let me give you an example of this. All bachelors are unmarried men is an analytic statement. To be a bachelor is to be an unmarried man, and to be an unmarried man is to be a bachelor. So the origin of knowledge is prior to experience, and the propositional claim is one that can be analytic. And one of the big debates within the history of philosophy is, is that analytic statements sometimes don't necessarily latch on to the real world because it's coming prior to experience and you don't need extra info to make analytic statements in that regard. I know that's kind of reductionistic, but we got to do that in one sense because we got a lot of ground to cover. The next one is empiricism, which says that knowledge comes after experience. And it's something under the effect of you are looking at the real world, you're asking questions like, is it raining outside? You go outside and test it, and you see from your experience, it's raining outside. But what it's doing is, is that it's giving us what are known as synthetic statements. 
So going back to our analogy, an analytic statement would be something like, all bachelors are unmarried men. A synthetic statement would be, all bachelors are unmarried men who wear red shirts. Why? Because there's nothing in the definition of a bachelor or an unmarried man that requires you to wear a red shirt or a blue shirt or a green shirt or a shirt at all. You get the difference there? How do you know that they're wearing a red, green, blue, whatever shirt? From experience. Now, the history of philosophy was these big debates between rationalists and empiricists. And some of the key figures within the rationalist stream were Plato and Augustine. Also, Descartes, Spinoza, and Leibniz. And on the empiricist stream, you had Aristotle and Aquinas, but you also had Locke, Barclay, and Hume. And what happened was, is that this brought us to the great debates in the history of philosophy with Immanuel Kant, who is probably the central figure on the issue of hermeneutical subjectivity and epistemological subjectivity. And what he was trying to say is this, is that I want to give you these categories of understanding in which we're going to bring together these two varying forms of knowledge. Rationalism gives us analytic claims. Empiricism gives us synthetic claims. And what he's trying to say is this. I want to change the categories, and I want to give you not just an analytic a priori or an a, a posteriori synthetic statement. I want to give you a synthetic a priori claim. In this, he's trying to say it's synthetic in that it's telling us something about the world. Remember, the red shirt tells us something about the real world, but it comes from analytic constructions. It's, a, in many respects, a hybrid of rationalism and empiricism. But in doing so, it's the categories and the forms of intuition are giving me ideas about the phenomenological world. I don't know the world in and of itself. I only know it as it's categorized by the mind. Let me explain this a little bit more. As we're looking at this, we see that there are three great revolutions in the history of philosophy up to this point. And it comes back to our idea here that within the history of ideas, you have rationalism and empiricism. Then you have transcendental thinking with Kant. And flowing out of it, you have positivism and idealism. Within this sort of rationalistic, idealistic frame, you have two issues that have taken place. With Plato, he was dealing with two issues, absolute and extreme relativism and absolute monism. And how did he synthesize them together? With metaphysical idealism. We are, knowledge is not found here in the world. It's something that's found outside of the world. So much of Plato's cave analogy is that you're a shadow gazer. If you're looking at the, the shadows inside the cave, how do you have real knowledge? You got to escape the cave. You got to be freed from those so-called claims of knowledge and see the forms in and of themselves. And once you have been sort of initiated into those knowledge claims, you can go back into the clay cave and free the others. But what do they do? They reject what you're going to say. Does this sound somewhat familiar from last night? The second thing that you find is that if you're going to look at the history of modern philosophy, you had extreme empiricism. David Hume, the Scottish skeptic. And you have absolute rationalism. Maybe like a, a Christian wolf 
who is influencing a figure like Kant or even forms of rationalism through a figure maybe such as Leibniz. And how did he deal with this? He gave us a new form of idealism. Namely, Plato gave us metaphysical idealism, Revolution 1. Kant gave us epistemological idealism, Revolution 2. But then when we come into hermeneutics, you see that there's this issue of the rules of signs, grammatical aspects of the text of scripture, and the spirit of antiquity, namely all of the things that philosophically and metaphysically affect you as a person and the way that you're going to appropriate a text. Grammar can give you an objective sense, but all of your independent subjective features necessarily dictate you in a way that you're not going to interpret it the same way. Why? Because you're all different people. These things are not just influencing you, but necessarily dictating you. And he gave us the third revolution. What was that? Hermeneutical idealism. Are you noticing something that's coming about here? Idealism, 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 separation from reality, getting away from the here and now and the objective knowledge claims. But I would tell you that there are two other big revolutions that have taken place with this. The next one would come through postmodernism, linguistic idealism, and the last one that we're dealing with today is simulacrity. Do you see where we're going with this? These great revolutions are separating us from objective reality. You have something in which you are looking above the metaphysics, beside the metaphysics, or the objects here, or epistemologically, you got to understand how you come to know. There's an emphasis upon you as the knower, or hermeneutically, an understanding of understanding, and so on and so forth. That's why Kant's philosophy was known as the great Copernican revolution. Traditional approaches to knowledge claim that the mind conforms unto objects. I go outside, I see a tree, I abstract the form of that tree, and I know the tree. The object of knowledge is an external real object. Kant's Copernican revolution is this. Objects conform unto the mind. The point is, we never know things in and of themselves, but only as the mind structures them. And in that sense, all knowledge is subjective. Now, don't see that as just vain relativism in Kant. Rather, it's the subject is necessarily involved in the knowing process. And that's why it's called the Copernican Revolution. You remember the debate with Copernicus was the issue is whether or not the sun revolves around the earth or the earth revolves around the sun. The revolution is this. Do, does the mind conform unto objects or do objects conform unto the mind? But in this revolution, we went from objective knowledge to subjective knowledge. The point is, is that Kant's notion of critical is different than some of the modern understandings of critical. For him, it's not just being judgmental, rather it's the sorting out of knowledge. But as it's used today, it's not just the sorting out of knowledge, it's about making these, these different ideas present, real, apparent, letting you know what's going on. So it, in Kant, it's the sorting out of phenomena, whereas today it's letting you know that you're racist in every different respect. What I want you to see is this, is that Kant is the central figure of modern philosophy. And in this sense, we could say Kant is the top figurehead, and from him, you get existentialism, 
phenomenology, idealism, neocontinism, Marxism, structuralism. You get other figures, Kierkegaard, Husserl, Fichte, Marx, Saussure, Hegel, all the rest. But notice what it is down there. We, I even make a little joke on this. Kant's at the top. You get to the bottom, ad nauseum. And then notice what it says here. Besides, everyone knows that it's turtles all the way down, which is a joke about an infinite regress after this point. It's just Kant has just so necessarily influenced these figures. But the point is this. If you have a, ba a bad tree and all the branches have gone bad, what do you want to do? Just hack off one of the branches? Is that going to fix your problem? You got to cut the whole tree down. And my whole point is this, is that we're in this position because of a lot of really bad German philosophers. Seriously. You ever think about that? It's like Germany gave us one really good thing and one really bad thing. It gave us Martin Luther and it gave us Kant. The good is Luther and the bad is Kant. And in so many respects, we are the children of Immanuel Kant. And people say, well, how have I been affected by this? And I know one figure has said this, whether you realize it or not, you've, in many respects, been more affected by Immanuel Kant than you have been by Jesus Christ. For example, Kantian religion is this idea that it's subjective, emotional, personal, not objective, propositional, and proclaimed. So traditional ideas, you know, Jesus Christ was born of a virgin, he lived a real life, died on the cross, rose again. We have propositional absolute knowledge about reality. After the Kantian turn in religion, we're going to look at this a little later, is ask me how you know he lives. He lives within my heart. It's a subjective, personal religion. But what I want you to see here is, is that German idealism, remember the, the other line that came out of the chart that we had, had to respond to Kant's views. Each approach granted the Kantian philosophical model, but modified it or changed it, added to it to downplay or construct, you know, I say in one sense, it's an addition, subtraction, modification, turning of this notion of the hard role of pure reason. German idealism is this whole appropriation of knowledge. It's the search for new modes or ways of knowing. And we see this represented in just three quick figures. Fichte said, well, it's not known through the hard role of pure reason. Rather, Reality is known via moral experiences. Or Schelling, reality is known through aesthetic experiences. Or the Romantics, reality is known through mystical experiences. So as we get to Schleiermacher, which one of these did he fall into? He's a romantic in that sense. Not like he was just out there wooing ladies with flowers and chocolates. He was falling into this idea that reality is known through some kind of mystical experience. This idea that we have different modes or ways of appropriating knowledge. And when you look at Schleiermacher, we have to see this. Like Kant, he does not begin with some prior given, as though the interpreter un understood a text independently of the process of understanding. Focus upon intersubjective inter conditions that make, us, make understanding possible. Unlike Kant, Schleiermacher does not postulate the notion of an absolute or universal. Rather, he focuses upon finite particularities and the individual slash corporate human life. And what we find is, is that the process of hermeneutics, one, he's giving us these 
these different things. One, epistemology. He's granting this. He's bringing it to the table that understanding requires re-experiencing the mental process of the author. Two, a relationship between the parts and the whole in which understanding is a process of grasping the parts through the whole. Namely, this is his divining of the whole that we're going to look at in a second. And the whole helps the interpreter make revisions of the parts ad infinitum. Three, there's this perceiving principle. Namely, it's identifying the individuality of the author as a human user of shared language. And four, his interpretive principle, understanding both the text and the author's known and or unknown thoughts and purposes. And that's why he gives us this whole idea of the hermeneutical circle, sometimes said the hermeneutical spiral, um, the snake eating its own tail in, in one regard from last night. And what you find here is, is that you have a comparative method. Think of it as that's the grammatical aspects of interpreting a text. You're looking at what the text says. You're comparing what's going on with it. But on the outside, you have this idea that there's a technical, psychological, interpretive aspect that's affecting the way that you understand the text. So it's this going back and forth between what the grammar of the text says and your psychological influence. In that respect, the hermeneutical spiral has a dialectical feature to it in which you're going from modes of consciousness, which is one aspect of it. The other aspect is what the grammar necessarily says, and you're trying to bring the two together. And what he's giving us is, is that you're going in this whole cycle of an exclusive aspect to a determinative aspect to an understanding to a divinatory method. Now, what I want us to see is, is the most important point is not that there's just this process and people say, well, don't you read a text and you learn a little bit more and you come back to it and you learn a little bit more and you're changed by the Bible and then you come to the Bible again and you change it a little bit more again basic claim in which they smuggle in a lot more philosophical corpus into it. And what you have to see in this divinatory aspect is that it's not just this idea of we're reading the text and we learn something from the text. Rather, Schleiermacher's divinatory aspect is paired with the comparative aspect. The comparative seeks to understand the parts, whereas the divinatory seeks to understand the whole. The divinatory aspect seeks to understand the individual as an individual, his historical, social, psychological aspects. However, it is also the process of transforming the interpreter into the author. He declares the task is to be formulated as follows, to understand the text at first as well as, and then even better than, its author. And the task is infinite. He goes on to say the interpreter must examine every feature which might contribute to the author's competence, performance, and will to express what is in the text. The interpreter can gather together data and critical judgments with the author may or may not have been aware of. Schleiermacher proposed a philosophical doctrine of investigating the conscious and unconscious aspects of the figure. Interpreters can, in a almost proto-Freudian sense, search for the conscious claims and the unconscious aspects and self-deceived aspects of the author. The point is this. Let's, let's illustrate what's going to go on here. He's trying to give us this whole aspect that understanding requires you to get behind the text. So 
You're trying to understand not only what Paul said in the Bible, but you got to understand the mind of Paul and all of his social and psychological and personal issues that he's bringing to the text. Notice this. It's not only aspects that Paul may have been aware of, but maybe the things that he's not aware of. Maybe it's his biases that he's bringing to the text of Scripture. And you, as the interpreter, can know the mind of Paul better than Paul. Why? Maybe it's a, they'll, they'll make claims like this. We're at the best privilege point of history. We just know better now. Or it could be something like, we just have more facts than Paul did now. Maybe Paul didn't realize that he was being influenced by this vague religion, and we do. And we can bring certain aspects to the text that he can't, and we can make you know specifically what the text is saying more than what Paul could let you know what the text is saying. So why is this a divine or divinatory aspect? Because you necessarily know the mind of the individual in a more holistic way than they could. You have the, the universal almost perspective in that regard over that figure. But practically speaking, what does this do? You can let everybody know how racist Paul was and how patriarchal Paul was, even if he didn't know it. So what does hermeneutics do in this regard? You get behind the text and you can have different readings of the text. You can have broader readings of the text, how they're not only just influenced, but necessarily determined in it. Going back to Luther, ministerial, magisterial, sola scriptura, or something else. Continuing on. The next big figure, Hans Gorg Gadamer. Where do you think he's from? Germany. I'm telling you, man. And he's trying to look at this issue of objectivism and absolute knowledge. He's denying the concept of objectivity in the sense that you can't know an object in and of itself. But he's also saying that in order to claim you have objective knowledge, you would have to know all things. But because we can't know all things, we have partial, finite, constructed knowledge. Did we just lose our PowerPoint here? Hey, it's back on again. That was me divinizing the author behind the text of the computer, <laughs> getting his mind in there. So, so this is what I want you to see, is that because you can't have absolute knowledge of something, you have partial constructed knowledge of it. So you have your four structures that you're bringing to the text of Scripture, and you're reading the text of Scripture, and Schleiermacher is not only giving us this idea that your consciousness is necessarily influenced and dictated, an understanding of understanding requires this, but Gadamer is giving us this idea that your historical conditionedness necessarily affects the way that you understand the text of Scripture. The point is this. With Kant, you have this idea that the mind is shaping reality. And then there has to be a strong emphasis upon the understanding of understanding in Schleiermacher. Then not only is it just an understanding of understanding, you've got to understand all the particular ways in which those particular features necessarily dictate the way you understand a text, namely your historical conditionedness. So you have the horizon of the original text, and you have the horizon of the interpreter, and there's this dialogical process that takes place in between each of them. 
And these dialecticals give us reversals of consciousness in which you're understanding the author of the text better and you're understanding yourself. But let me tell you exactly what's going on with an illustration. You have the movement of history. We live in a historical world. Things happen, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. But let's just say this. You lived during the time of World War I, and the claim was this was the Great War. And not only was the claim made that it was the Great War, but in that aspect, you have a dialectical moment of the experience. So think of it as this. You're interpreting that in a dialectical fashion. But then World War II happens. So what do you do with that propositional claim? Can you continue it? No, your historical condition necessarily changes the way that you're going to look at this. Now, you look at World War II with a different dialectical moment and a different dialectical experience in that regard. Now, the movement of history is that you can no longer say that it's the great war and the war to end all wars. Rather, now World War II is the war beyond the previous wars, and this continues on and on and on. Your historical place necessarily influence in your dialogical process of this, so you have a reversal of consciousness of the actual claim in and of itself. You once thought this, but now you have a new knowledge claim, a reversal of consciousness. It's the historical divinization of what's taking place, not just the linguistic understanding divinization within Schleiermacher. Now, post-Gadamerian hermeneutics is where a lot of this starts to explode. And there's metacritical, socio-ethical, socio-pragmatic, and all the rest. We could spend days looking at this, but we have these things called lives, and we might not want to look at them. Socio-critical is the one that's of the most importance for us. Socio-critical is the most important for today's environment because it is driven by a hermeneutics that must unmask social interests through emancipatory critique that serve freedom, justice, and truth. Emphasis upon this idea unmasking the social historical interests of consciousness. And where does the idea of emancipation, emancipatory critique, bringing about justice come from? Those aspects there. So let's continue looking here. Sociocritical approaches are driven by these primary guidelines. One, they construct critiques of frameworks of interpretation that are presupposed in dominant traditions. Two, you find it in liberation, black, and feminist approaches as they offer alternative reinterpretations of texts, biblical texts in particular, from the standpoint of a particular experience and action. Typically, they are narrative in form and discuss the history of social oppression or long expositions of black and women's experiences. Each group seeks critical tools and resources to unmask uses of biblical texts which serve social interests of domination, manipulation, and oppression. I think it speaks for itself. These texts were used in such a way, written in such a way, in a consciousness of such a way, that they manipulate, dominate, and oppress you. And now it's our job, because we've been socially enlightened, to tell you all of those different ways and to relate them unto your condition. But beyond that, there's this debate between theory and practice within liberation theologies. Liberation theologians stress a relationship between theory and practice versus theory separated from practice. There is a commitment to the theoretical integrity and the so-called grassroots commitment to practical action. 
There's also a or sorry, differentiation between levels of liberation between professional theorists who elaborate their socio-analytical ideas versus the pastors and communities that are called to live out the so-called Christian gospel liberation in an action-oriented commitment to liberation. Let me just explain this very briefly. You got people living in the universities that give us theory, but the real work is done on the ground with the real people who are taking your theory and putting it into action. It's not just theory apart from action, it's theory and action. But then it's interesting because you read these dialogues with these people, particularly like in the South American context, and they are taught liberation theology, and they have these academic figures that are over them, and then they start to realize, wait a minute, these guys have forms of dominance over me. Now I need to be liberated from the guy that taught me liberation theology. And you're like, guys, come on here. But what it does is this, is it brings us into the rise of liberation theologies. And this debate is fundamentally Marxist, and the debate worked out most thoroughly through the neo-Marxist circles in Yugoslavia and in the Praxis journals of the 1940s and in the 1950s where you see their literature bringing these things into a social awareness for what it's going to do both as a liberation concept of Marxism, but then it brings it into a theological construct. The key Marxist commitment is found in Feuerbach's 11th thesis, which states the philosophers have only interpreted the world in various ways. The point is to change it. The point is to take this idealistic theory and change the world. Why? Because there's a fundamental relationship that has to exist between not only theory and practice. There are debates about what this looks like, but the revolutionary praxis still needs, via Marx, to be guided by concrete theoretical thought. So the idea is, is that it's not one or the other, but a both-and concept. The theory is going to drive your action, but without action, your theory is insufficient. So what we find is, is that there's a fusion and liberation of horizons. Theory and practice came together when a new fusion or liberation of one's horizon occurs. So you read the Bible in one way for so long, and then you're exposed to liberation theology. Now you're freed from that horizon, and now you're able to have a new fusion of horizons, a new consciousness, a new understanding of the biblical text in which you know Matthew is now speaking to oppressed groups, and we now need to just go and deal with oppressed groups in order to love our neighbors like they did with the guy that's in jail in, the, in Matthew 24 and Matthew 25, or when Jesus is coming to the lost sheep that's really the oppressed sheep of Israel. This brings about new readings of biblical texts and social actions. There's a strong emphasis upon conscious raising and new understandings of reality, horizons, based upon the psycho-social critical tools from Marx, Freud, and Marcuse, namely a hermeneutics of liberation and suspicion. One of the key figures with this is Gustavo Gutierrez, and he outlined their program of liberation theology, which is theory, at the Second Conference of Latin American Bishops in Medellin, Colombia in 1968. Gutierrez wrote the outline for this conference and expanded it into his book, The Theology of Liberation. In addition, the practice of liberation was declared at the Second Episcopal Conference at Medellin, which called for social justice action after the Second Vatican Council and Pope Paul VI's encyclical Populorum Progressio in 1967. 
the strong correlations between them. The actual action, though, remember, we're dealing theory, 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 but you have to have action in addition to it. The actual action came through the notion of conscious raising through the re-education program of Paulo Fiere in his book, The Pedagogy of the Oppressed, who declared education is not value-neutral, but can set people free by changing what they count as reality. Schleiermacher gives you a divinatory aspect of understanding a greater aspect of reality. Hans Gore Gadamer says, I'm going to give you a historical way of having a greater divinatory aspect of which you understand reality. And the liberation theologian said, I'm going to do the exact same thing. You're oppressed. You never saw it. These people have been manipulating you with the Bible and all of their different aspects of church and doctrine and theology, and I'm going to free you from it a new consciousness of what counts as reality. The effects of theory and practice are this, revolution. It's not just you see it different, it's that you do something with it. And Heller Kamara calls this the spiral of violence. So here's what I want you to see here. Philosophical hermeneutic can be understood in this regard. The hermeneutical spiral sounds so good, right? I come to the text and I got my pre-understandings and I've got my readings, and I've got my, my appropriations of which how I'm affected by my life, culture, and so on and so forth. But what's the real goal behind this? The conscious raising divinization of reality. And we could go into other figures. Heidegger gives us ontological conditionedness, much like Gadamer gave us historical conditionedness. Wittgenstein gave us linguistic conditionalism. Ricoeur gave us the effects of action or doing of text. Derrida gives us the linguistic mutability of reality. To read a text doesn't necessarily change a text. The point is reality is gone. It's interpretation all the way. Turtles all the way down. Many of the philosophical tenets of it can be this. Kant says objects can form under the mind. German idealists give us new search and modes of knowledge and rationality. Hegel, knowledge is never fixed, final, but in constant flux, seeking a utopian, greater, higher goal. Heidegger, metaphysics is never fixed and stable, but conditioned upon actions. Gadamer, historical conditionedness is an ontological actualization of historically finite persons or events. We can always broaden our horizons, but we can never decenter the historical self and reach objective knowledge. Wittgenstein, language and meaning are conventional, never fixed and stable. Recour, self-criticism is necessary, so we don't worship idols of projection with an emphasis upon the text of language or the individualities of communities. Derrida, to read a text, gives us the death of the author. The point is this. There are no universal paradigms for knowledge and communication. But how do they solve it? Accept our view. Speak our language. We're going to show you an appropriation of it. And people say, well, this is just philosophically abstract stuff. No, it is not. Again, these Germans tried to give us specific ways of appropriating this idea of philosophy and these ideas of consciousness. Remember, Kant and his religion and rational theology, or even religion within the realms of reason, gives a subjective, appropriated idea of how revelation and knowledge occur. And what did he give us? He gave us an experiential, non-cognitive, non-propositional, non-revealed faith. And who expresses it best? Schleiermacher. Schleiermacher was a pastor 
who preached and the father of theological liberalism. And in fact, it's, it's great that we have like these Christmas decorations up there because it helps illustrate the point. Schleiermacher, in order to appropriate his idea that we all have different consciousness of understanding that we bring to the text, says, look at Christmas. How do men and women look at Christmas? It says, you have a group of guys that go to the Christmas Eve service, they come home, and what do they do in their maleness? They debate the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Whereas what do the women do? They go home and they talk about how beautiful the decorations were, how much they liked the music. See, there's different modes of understanding that you have to understand. You don't just have an understanding of Christmas. You have your modes of understanding. Or a dialectical theology, Karl Barth. The whole neo-Orthodox movement, Barth, Brunner, Boltmann, Varnheit, Begegnung, truth as experience, not truth as that which corresponds to reality. So here's what I want you to see as we transition here. Hermeneutics can cover a variety of methodological sins. I'm not undermining your idea of biblical authority when I say that you are a racist and that you need to appropriate my liberation theology. I'm just doing good hermeneutics. They see it better than you do. They've been initiated into the hermeneutical club. It's almost like they have divine access to the minds of the authors that you don't have. Schleiermacher's divinatory aspect. So what you have to see is this. There's this book that came out by Mortimer Adler, probably one of the greatest philosophers of the 20th century. And it was titled, The Difference of Man and the Difference of Makes. And he's dealing with an issue that we're not going to get into on the relationship between artificial intelligence and the concept of intelligence and whether or not we can actually have machines that can be constructed in such a way that they give us knowledge like a human being. And he says, no, there can't because there's a difference of kind versus a difference of degree. So a difference of degree would be like all the different circles. One's just bigger than the other or smaller than the other. Difference of kind is the difference between a square and a circle. Now, the point is, is that a smaller circle can, by difference of degree, become a larger circle. But no matter how many sides you add onto a square, it might appropriate a circle, but it's never going to actually become a circle. So why do I say all this? When you read evangelical hermeneutics today, and you ask, where did this woke garbage come from? I'm going to tell you where it came from. They got it all from a bunch of German idealists. You literally want to go and say, which part of Schleiermacher or um, Gadamer or Heidegger did you get that from? My point is this, is you ask this question, where did all of these woke guys come from? Well, they were taught it in their hermeneutics classes. Because this counts as good hermeneutics today, what we just did. So the point is that there's not a difference of kind between the evangelical appropriations of this, evangelical in quotes, but a difference of degree. They fundamentally bought into it. Look at this. The two horizons, as you're going to see here from Anthony Thinselton, or Trinity professor uh, Grant Osborne, the hermeneutical spiral, or scripture's communication with Janine Brown, or Anthony Thistleton's whole works on hermeneutics, or Daniel Trier Wheaton with theological interpretation of scripture, or Kevin Van Hooser's dictionary of theological interpretation. The end is not seen with this. It is endless with the publications that they've done this. Or what we're going to find is there's one book that responded to it. Robert Thomas saw all of this coming in his book, Evangelical Hermeneutics, Master Seminary Prof. 
And what he says is that there was a massive difference between 19, pre-1970s and post-1970s. And the gist of it is this. I'll give it this without going to each one. He said that there was an emphasis upon man's ability to know reality, God's ability to reveal Scripture, and the fact that when you're looking at the text of Scripture, objectivity could be achieved. But post-1970s hermeneutics had a strong emphasis upon pre-understandings post-Kantian subjectivity, the tentativeness of interpretations. He says that there's a variety of definitions of pre-understanding. Is it a prejudice or commitment? Is it a hermeneutics of self-awareness? One's view regarding life and ultimate realities, a body of assumptions? Maybe your, your different understandings of how linguistics and grammar affect you. Is the Bible a subjective book or is it a supernatural book? Is it an authoritative book? Is it a trustworthy book? The point is that it could be the colored lenses by which you view the text endlessly. They equivocate on the understanding of pre-understanding. But here's what I want you to see of what this does. And I want to read this quote in full. He says this, understanding among hermeneutical theoreticians post-1970s is widely or is widespread, resulting in multiple pre-understandings of pre-understanding. They agree only regarding its influence on the outcome of the interpretive endeavor. In line with this acknowledged subjectivism, most advocate that one must view personal interpretive conclusions as tentative. This relativism relativism leads easily to divesting the scripture of any value and stating propositional truth. Though one writer would limit the uncertainty to ambiguous areas such as sovereignty and responsibility or the millennial issue or church government... Others pass on this uncertainty as tolerance of fellow believers for the sake of unity. I don't agree with your conclusions, but I concede your interpretation. Here's the key point. If allowed to progress to its logical end, however, this outlook may lead to the realization that what we have considered to be cardinal dogmas, such as the deity of Christ, his second coming, and his substitutionary atonement are, listen, pay attention, this is the main point, Merely the myopic conclusions of Western white middle-class males, such a hermeneutical approach would spell the end of meaningful Christian doctrine. The only reason you believe what you do is because you're white Western males influenced by your so-called evangelical doctrine. There's no doctrine of the Christian faith. You have the doctrines of the Christian faith. Subjective hermeneutics give us this idea that objectivity is gone. Why? You have dialectical truth or dialectical realities, existential truth or realities, historical realities, perspective, racial, feminist, immigrant, minority, homosexual. They're all affirming the subjective perspectival standpoint approaches to manufactured forms of reality. And this is exactly what we find in all of our hermeneutics classes today. Fuller's Theological Seminary did it with New orthodoxy, evangelicals and Catholics did it with the dialectical appropriation of the doctrine of justification. You find that Southern Baptists did it with Resolution 9. We find that evangelical seminaries have done this. Walter Strickland, Kingdom Diversity, the Kingdom Hermeneutics Approach, Matthew Hall, Jarvis Williams, all the rest. Evangelical organizations, the Gospel Coalition's appropriation of critical race theory, or let's, let's redeem it and call it kingdom race theory with Tony Evans. Evangelical publications, Esau Macaulay's Reading While Black, African-American biblical interpretation is an exercise of hope, exercise of radical liberation, theory and practice. So let's come back to Luther. 
Luther sounded the alarm that Roman Catholic tradition would turn the clear scripture, teachings of scripture, into a wax nose. Critical hermeneutics, postmodernism, CRT, have not only created a wax nose, but a wax head, neck, and body. Critical hermeneutics and perspectivalism are not just a ministerial guide or a means of the hermeneutics of humility. Rather, they are magisterial guides ontologically determining the way you must interpret any text, including the biblical text, or any feature of reality. The determination is based upon accidental features such as race, gender, sexuality, historical moments, and not upon any fixed human nature. Remember, they're non-essentialist. Ultimately, it means there are no doctrines taught in Scripture. There are only perspectives embraced by various interpreters of Scripture. So what do we do? What's the action call here? We must take up Francis Schaeffer's call to engage with true truth, not this dialectical existential truth, none of this racially biased truth or feminist biased truth or any of the other garbage that they're taught. And second of all, we don't need to say, oh, I'm just giving a hermeneutics of humility. Who could I ever be to say that I have a knowledge claim? G.K. Chesterton nailed it when he said, the issue is, is that we have placed humility on the wrong organ. Humility does not fall on the organ of knowledge. It's an issue of the will. Are you going to submit to the truth claim, not say there is no truth claim? Or as Francis Schaeffer says this, here's the great evangelical disaster, the failure of the evangelical world to stand for truth as truth. There's only one word for this, namely accommodation. The evangelical church has accommodated under the spirit world of the age. And that's why he wrote the book, The Great Evangelical Disaster. Schaeffer was very clear about the ways this took place. The nature of true truth, the inerrancy of the Bible, and the existential method. He says this, but if we truly believe this, then something must be considered. Truth carries with it confrontation. Truth demands confrontation, loving confrontation, but confrontation nonetheless. If our reflex action is always accommodation, regardless of the centrality of the truth involved, there is something wrong. And there's something wrong with you. It demands confrontation. Notice what he says here. The point up just they, this points up just how encompassing the infiltration is. Namely, just as neo-orthodox roots are only a theological expression of the surrounding worldview and methodology of existentialism. So what is being put forth as a new view of scripture in evangelicalism is also an infiltration of the general worldview and methodology of existentialism. By placing a radical emphasis on subjective human experience, existentialism undercuts the objective side of existence. For the existentialist, it is an illusion to think we can know anything truly, that there is any such thing as a certain objective truth or moral absolutes. All we have is subjective experience with no final basis for right or wrong or truth or beauty. In short, evangelicals who embrace this form of hermeneutics have accommodated unto the existential methodology. We are living in the prophetic fulfillment of the great evangelical disaster. Wokeness is the fulfillment of Schaefer's warnings. And we are seeing the net results of it today. The Chicago Statement warned us about this. We could go into that on another day. They warned everybody of this. It's not just Schaefer. The whole ICBI and the International Council on Biblical Inerrancy. So how do we respond to this? we got to see it as completely, utterly self 
defeating. You can't have any cross-cultural, cross-linguistic, non-conscious-based aspect of truth. But I just did it in saying all of those things to you, so go buy my books. Read them. Isn't it funny how there's like two types of books out there? Those where this applies to and the authors of the people who it actually doesn't apply to? It's great. We also need to come back to the point where we look for methods that can give us objective and universally valid paradigms of understanding. An emphasis on the existence of God and an absolute mind, that if there's an absolute mind, there can be absolute meaning, and the analogy meaning the image of God and man that gives you a cross-cultural, cross-linguistic, cross-male, female, time, place, etc., continuity between all people. A return to the classical realistic metaphysics that you find really in Aristotle and Aquinas, the two people that did more to absolutely just destroy idealism in the West. So here's our question. Are we doomed to hermeneutical nihilism? If evangelicals continue down the path of embracing critical hermeneutics and perspectival readings, yes. If evangelicals keep adopting third-way approaches to philosophy, theological method, apologetics, and hermeneutics, yes. But wait, we can fix it with triperspectivalism. Perspectivalism by any other name is still perspectivalism, just like a rose by any other name is still a rose. A difference without a distinction. If evangelicals reject critical hermeneutics and reject the existential method, though, no, we're not doomed to hermeneutical nihilism. If evangelicals return and embrace a realist approach to philosophy, theology, and doctrine, then no, we're not doomed to hermeneutical nihilism. If evangelicals return and embrace a classic evangelical understanding of God's ability to reveal himself in true and meaningful cognitive propositional form, no, we're not doomed to hermeneutical nihilism. In short, evangelicals must join with Schaefer in claiming he is there, he is not silent. And note, it is a hallmark of arrogance to claim that God's mouth is shut or stutters due to vain philosophical and racialized hermeneutics. So like Luther, we take the word of God to the people of God, broken away from our great magisterium of our day, wokeness. Thank you.